If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 488. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all the social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. Go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. Go to learn true, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. Click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Lots of great ways to support the show. If you click on that shop tab, you get cool stuff with my logo on it. As always, share this podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And not just that. Send me those requests for shows because I like to do shows that you want to hear. And I'm going to have one of those this week. But before I get to that, I wanted to focus on this meaning of history and this Jeffersonian tradition. And it all comes back to thinking locally and acting locally, right? I mean, when we talk about Jeffersonianism, this is what we're getting to. In the last episode, I talked about Louis Rubin, a Southern liberal, who uh, mentioned that the real lesson of the war could be this Jeffersonianism. This interest in the Southern tradition could have been cultivated by the war itself. What was the cost of the war for America? And we always just focus on the, the racial aspect of it. But what was the real cost for America? He brought up some good questions there. Could we have ended slavery some other way? Uh, why, did we tra- why did we dig in our heels on these two sides when some other things were more pressing and important? The economic side of this, the real cost of the war, the real cost of the war, high inflation, taxes, the ballooning of the federal budget, corruption, the triumph of the fusion of finance, capital, and government, the triumph of the war party. I mean, these were things that came out of that war. The cost of the war was greater than anyone really realized because all we do is focus on these people were racist and slave owners. And they had to be defeated. That's all it is. That's all that matters for Americans. And that's so short-sighted and stupid that we forget how important the real cost of that war was for America. Now, on the other hand, you can say, well, America was great because of this. I mean, look at all the great things we've done. Look at all the great things that happened after that. Right. I mean, we can talk about the glory of men and the heroism of men in World War I and World War II and the Vietnam War and the Korean War and the all these wars, but were not all those wars created because America was changed because of the great conclave in the 1860s, because the Republicans won that war? Well, not all the, were all these wars even necessary for America? Could America have been different? Could things have been done differently, peacefully, more amicably, had that war not come? Would America have progressed differently had the Jeffersonians stayed in power and not allowed 
the Hamiltonians to capture the American society. And then, of course, as a default, the progressives move on from there. These are big questions that aren't really answered. But I'm going to talk about this piece today in Chronicles Magazine from 1982. Uh, this is by Clyde Wilson. And let me preface this by talking about something that happened. When I was being hooded for my doctorate, and we go through the nice ceremony there, and we're standing in line, and this uh, uh, washed-up hippie professor says something about Emerson. And Clyde says, the most, one of the most overrated people ever in American history is Emerson. Of course, there's an Emerson quote for everything. You go to any graduation ceremony, well, Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, I mean, it's just so stupid, right? But this is what we get. Who cares what Ralph Waldo Emerson said? He's a charlatan. But the fact is, uh, you know, this was said, and uh, Clyde said that every 50 years or so, the, the Yankees get restless and they do crazy stuff. And so you saw it in the 1860s, you saw it again with the progressive movement in the early 1900s, and you saw it again in the 18, 19, 1950s, 1960s, and then you see it again here in the last uh, last decade or so, not even decade yet, 2015 forward, we're seeing it again. The Yankees have become restless. We've got political Puritans. The squad, I've mentioned it on this podcast, they're political Puritans. That's what they are. They're Puritans. We've, we've traded in religious Puritanism for political Puritanism, and it's, it's a natural progression because that was even happening in the 19th century. So this is what's going on, and, and Clyde wrote this essay in 1982 for Chronicles, so uh, this was, you know, 40 years ago almost that he wrote this. But think about how much has changed even this 40 years. Now, he had a pretty optimistic view of what could happen at the end of this, which didn't happen. But this is a book review. The book is Milton Rugoff, The Beechers, An American Family in the 19th Century. And the title of this essay is The Enemy Up Close. He says, American Protestantism divides into two distinct cultural traditions dating back to colonial times. One tradition derives from New England and its Calvinist in origin. The other is Southern and Anglican. Anglican must be understood here as referring to a spirit rather than a structure, the structure having been largely dissolved by the American frontier. This dichotomy has gone largely unnoticed for several reasons. For one thing, it does not follow denominational lines. Also, though the latter tradition may include more adherents, the former has been better publicly, greater has been better publicly, greater prestige, more get up and go. Many Americans scarcely know that the second tradition exists and think the first is American Protestantism. But, and I think he makes a good point here. New England Protestantism it isn't American Protestantism, though you can say that with the Great Awakening, some of that was brought into the South. But he's saying there's another line of American Protestantism, and that was the Southern version of this, the much more orthodox, traditionally Anglican tradition. And so, I mean, this is what David Hackett Fitcher gets into. You have, you have American sections. And that's all that Clyde is saying here. The New England tradition is Puritan. That is, discipline, communal, and concern with the purification of the community. It is parent to the American civil religion, a fact easily demonstrated by the allusions in presidential inaugural addresses to America as a city upon a hill. He's right about that. It's a civil religion. It becomes part of the polity. And this is why we have political Puritans today. This is what the squad is. This is what the modern left is. They are political Puritans. And 
It's purification of the community. This is what we're getting. We have to purify ourselves. We have to get rid of the deplorables. We have to get rid of all these people that don't fit. Southerners, most importantly, they need to be assimilated, purified, and brought into the community. They have, they have thoughts that don't fit with modern American society. This is where you get the culture war. These people create it. Because all they're saying is, we got we got to get rid of the other side. So whereas Rubin was saying they were duped into this and missing the big issues, I agree. But part of that is a reaction to this. Because when you're told over and over again, you're a bad person. You're not, you're not even a person. You're un-American. You're subhuman. What does that do? And of course, this has been used about various groups throughout American history, not just Southerners. We've seen it. I mean, the Irish recalled that. Of course, blacks recalled that. You see what happens when you start doing that to people, though, and the reaction to it and what that does to society. The Southern tradition is largely folkish and focuses on the individual and the state of his soul. It goes quietly about its work and is forbearing toward the, the moat in the neighbor's eye. Its evidences being largely manifested in private life and often among people beneath the notice of intellectuals are seldom recorded by either contemporary observers or historians. Because of the ignorance of the intellectuals, its presence and significance have been greatly under, underestimated in American history. One can grasp the distinction between these two varieties of Protestantism by imagining two different churches on the same Sunday morning. One church is in Massachusetts, say, or Michigan. The preacher sermonizes on world peace, and the congregation sings the, sings the battle hymn of the Republic. The other church is in rural North Carolina, or perhaps Oklahoma, or blue-collar section of Los Angeles. The sermon is on salvation. The hymn is in the sweet by and by. Now, unfortunately, we've seen this other version just completely bulldoze all American churches. That's another part of the problem. Puritanism is a vicious cancer, politically and religiously, in what it does. But this is what's going on, right? I mean, we now in Southern churches, you're going to get people singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Ridiculous, but they do it. And uh, because they just don't know. Because they've been told over and over again the South is the enemy. John Smith was awful, right? We got we to celebrate these great pilgrims and Puritans. They are the true church. They're not. There is no question that the first church represents far more worldly power and prestige than the other, so much so that even latecomers to these shores often imitate it, unconsciously recognizing that assimilation to the New England model is the most respectable form of Americanism. One can find American nuns whose rhetoric and political activism resemble New England Unitarianism more closely than anything in European Catholicism. Martin Luther King, a man raised in the second tradition, became almost instantaneously a power in the land when he shrewdly resorted to New England-style rhetoric. He was raised in the second, but because he became part of the first, he became powerful. To distinguish these two traditions further, one need only consider two manifestations of the divergent traditions in American beha in human behavior. As a demonstration of the Anglican tradition, let's take General Lee, who reconciled the duties of a soldier and unostatiousness, faith, and piety as successfully as is possible in an imperfect world, so successfully that he provided a model for millions of what used to be known as Christian gentlemen. General Lee understood Christianity as an imperative struggle for personal virtue, its social relevance being that a virtuous man is always valuable to his fellows. For the contrasting example, one can find no better than Henry Ward Beecher, 
General Lee's contemporary and the most famous performing preacher of his generation. Beecher understood the imperative of Christianity as one of the social improvement and personal virtue as consisting largely of being on the right political side. Think about how the religious right is more Beecher today than General Lee. It's more Beecher than Lee. Because we've politicized everything, even religion. Milton Rugoff's thorough and an intimate history of three generations of Beechers is an admiring but candid account of a brilliant, energetic, and forceful family. His treatment of the Beechers shows the transformation of American society in the 19th century from Puritanism to Victorianism. Rugoff's book also offers an up-close view of the first of the two Protestant traditions and of how it was transformed by virtue of the Civil War from a peculiarity of New England into the American tradition. The intellectual, spiritual, and public careers of the Beechers exemplify that merging of democracy and purification ritual that has proved the predominant tone of American politics right down to the present day. First, there was Lyman Beecher, the leading Calvinist theologian of his day, who was instrumental in spreading the gospel to the West. The West, in New England parlance, referred to the areas north of the Ohio River settled by New Englanders. Nothing else counted. Among Lyman's numerous children were Catherine Beecher, a pioneer feminist, Harriet Beecher Stowe, the little woman who made the big war in Lincoln's phrase, Henry Ward Beecher, the most admired and highest paid preacher of his day, and a raft of other sons, all of them reformist clergymen. This intimate review of the Beechers not only helps one understand the 19th century, but it has a more urgent uh, pertinence as well. Let us assume that in the future some scholar will wish to write an objective history of the 1960s and 70s in America. It is optimistic, I know, to hope that anyone will survive our educational debacle and declining opportunities for free speech with sufficient intellectual curiosity and ability. Clyde said that in 1982. I mean, imagine what, 40 years later. The most difficult problem such a historian will face in understanding these two decades will be this. How did it happen that during that epoch, such a large number of people with low ethical and moral standards and transparently self-interested and destructive motives managed to pass themselves off as the moral leaders and benefactors of society? This is a great question. You look at the political class. You look at the, uh, the people that are the big names in modern American society, and most of them are worthless morally. Most of them are worthless people. They're awful. They're the worst of society. How did this happen? How did the worst get elevated to the top? They're terrible people. How did that happen? And how do we overlook all of their moral failings time and time and time again? Well, the Beechers are an example. He's going to show you how. This question can be answered only by looking back into the reformist movements of the 19th century and to the precedents and parallels they provided for more recent ravagings of order and decency in the name of mortal, of mortal vision. The 1960s and 70s resemble no period in American history so much as the 1850s. The keynote of both areas, eras is irresponsible destruction and aggression in the name of democratic fulfillment. The earlier crusade, though now long hollowed by success, can be seen when viewed through the medium of the Beechers to have been an amb as ambiguous in motivation and results as the latter one. The closest resemblance of the two periods is in the presence of that now familiar intolerance and the extravagance of rhetoric and action that kicks over the traces of normal political life and postulates goals so evidently righteous that dis disagreements is sin. Explainable only as the work of the devil. This is what we get to, right? I mean, if you oppose even... So, again, 40 years later, we're seeing another round of this stuff, right? So we've got a situation where if you oppose the 
political Puritans, you are a sinner. You are the work of the devil, and you have to be assimilated and reformed. You're, you're a non-person. This style of politics demonizes the opposition and deifies itself. Again, think about what is happening in modern American society. This is why this essay, written 40 years ago, is still current. Anyone who has observed politics in this country in the last 15 years or so understands the extent to which such violent and anti-rational posing has held sway in public discourse. The 1850s supply the model. From the imposing authority of his pulpit, Henry Ward Beecher exhorted young men to depart for Kansas and kill Southern settlers. This rhetoric represent, represented more than the momentary and overwrought emotions of one man. It reflected the behavior of a large number of people and spilled over into private, apolitical matters. Think about the rhetoric that's used now on the left about people on the right. I mean, they have to be done away with. When Harriet visited the South for the first time after the war, she was quite astounded to encounter families who were kindly cultivated Christian and militant rebels. Rogoff comments, She had seen the barbarous enemy, the face of evil, and found that his sins had left no mark on him. But the Puritan ritual of demonization had already done its work. It is, it is not the Beecher's desire for social improvement that should, be, to, should trouble us, but the self-aggrandizement and disregard for consequences with which it was pursued. From the phenomenon of busing, as with other social issues, we too have grown familiar with absentee moralism. Henry did all he could to hasten the onset of the conflict, but during the war, which he had helped to produce, and in which over 600,000 men died, the famous clergyman lived in luxury in Newport and Europe. I mean, how many times have we seen that? The political class sitting back and just watching their work destroy everything, and they just are unaffected by it. Recall also the 1970s when philosophical and psychological weirdness sprouted constantly from the same soil as liberal politics. Again, the parallels and precedents are evident. The Beechers were almost all involved in spiritualism. Professor Stowe, Harriet's husband, had frequent visions. Harriet, in response to the remark that the creator of Uncle Tom had never been to the South, said, No, but it all came to me in visions, one after another, and I put them down in words. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Well, she had spent a little time in the South, in Kentucky, but very little. But the whole book is from visions. She had visions of these things. And you put, I mean, it was just all fabricated. It's kind of like the progressives. You know, you get uh, Upton Sinclair's A Jungle. He'd never been to a meatpacking plant before, but he had visions of it and what it would be like. There's no arguing with pictures, she explained on another occasion, a sentiment that would doubtless please our electronic journalists. One does not have to be a latter-day defender of slavery to recognize the disastrous consequences that ensued when people like the Beechers took slavery out of the arena of political realities in which the Founding Fathers had dealt with it and placed it in the realm of fiction, propaganda, sentimentality, and emotional self-indulgence. By now we are all familiar with the extent to which the great society and its various attendant crusades for justice provided a cover for private pocket lining. One recalls various political figures who were simultaneously great civil rights advocates and outright crooks. There seems an, an inescapable affinity between a certain kind of political, politically mobilized morality and dishonesty. Both Henry and Harriet became wealthy because of their anti-slavery positions. Harriet, for example, purchased a confiscated Florida plantation for a pittance. Henry's favorite moneymaker was a mock slave auction that he staged over and over again. On every occasion, the slave was young, attractive, female, and almost white. There is no recorded instance of an auction of a male, child, or ugly female slave. So again, he's sensationalizing this. And 
of course, what he doesn't mention, Claude doesn't mention this uh, plantation in Florida, Stowe and her son would complain about black Southerners. They didn't want to work. They, I mean, making very racist statements about this. So, I mean, these people that are so high and mighty are not above saying things that we would consider to be racist and awful today. To draw a close to our catalog of precedents, there is a high correlation in both the 1850s and our own era between reformist politics of the Puritan stripe and sexual promiscuity and opportunism. We all know that the new frontier, Great Society Epic, was marked by a cynical jettisoning of traditional sexual morality by the occupants of the seats of power, and that much of the Elon that fueled the new left in the streets and its fellow travelers in positions of power resulted from the euphoria of the early stages of sexual license. The rhetoric, however, was mostly about peace and justice. Henry Ward Beecher, the most popular, popular preacher in America, famous for his spellbinding crusades against slavery, liquor, the secret vice, and every other evil, committed adultery with at least one woman of his congregation, a woman who happened also to be a Sunday school teacher and the wife of an admiring protege of Beecher's. The offense itself is not so revealing as the spirit of callous exploitation with which it was carried out and the deceit and hypocrisy with which it was covered up. Beecher was warmly defended by the establishment of his day. Most of the press declared his innocence and his parishioners raised $100,000 for his legal expenses, while those who brought the charges that were now to be true, known to be true were hounded. We now know to be true, sorry, were hounded. The powers that be then is now rushed to the rescue with the most vulnerable asset. Their pretense of superior moral vision is threatened. Think about this back in the 90s. I mean, how everyone rushed to Clinton's aid. And then, of course, they've jettisoned Clinton because he became archaic, right? But think about if, if Obama, for example, was embroiled in some moral scandal. Or Michelle Obama, one of the two, was embroiled in some moral scandal. How you would never, it would never see the light of day. Because it will be crushed. Right? But then, of course, on the right, we have Donald Trump, who is no moral saint either. But, of course, all of his moral failings are brought out because that was supposed to wreck him. But to the left, it doesn't matter. This has been brought up all kinds of times. The left doesn't matter. They can do whatever they want morally. You've got Joe Biden. There's a funny little video going around of Joe Biden making a speech against drug use. And you've got Hunter Biden uh, doing drugs on the right on video. And, I mean, it doesn't matter. Oh, well, who cares about that? But, I mean, my gosh, if that was Trump... If that was uh, one of his sons or daughters, I mean, it would have been it would have been over. But who cares about Hunter Biden? Henry's deceit in this episode was not merely a weakness displayed on one painful occasion. It was a way of life to a man whose fame and riches were built upon a conveniently abstract, unscrupulously aggressive, politically irresponsible moralizing. In his memoirs, for example, Henry lied about so simple a thing as a college debate. He recounted an occasion in which he had carried the House against a proposal for the colonization of blacks outside the United States. In fact, he had not participated in the debate in question, and the pro-colonization side had won. Characteristically, he had falsely glorified his own role and distorted the historical record to make his anti-slavery stand date to a much earlier and more dangerous period than it actually did. The story of the Beechers is that of the people who proclaimed themselves the champions of freedom and morality and demonized those who disagreed, while all the time, keeping their hand in the till and their eye on the main chance. The chief lesson we can learn is that there is something in the American fabric that guarantees that now, and, that now and then such people will succeed outrageously. Today's secular liberals will, of course, dismiss Henry Ward Beecher as simply a typical hypocritical Protestant moralist. Yet he was one of them. I think that's the important thing. that this He was one of them, and this is true. 
This is where I bash the 1776 Commission and all the faux conservatives who run around saying that these people, the abolitionists, the reformers of the 19th century, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frederick Douglass, are one of I mean, they're, they're not conservative. They're on the left. And yes, so if they're on the left, then where are these conservatives? On the left. This is the problem. It's not to say that, I mean, as Clyde brings up here, we could have talked about slavery and ending slavery. Slavery needed to go. Slavery needed to go. But how was it to go was the real question. The founding generation understood it. Had to, I mean, they had to wrestle with this. How do we do it? How do we get rid of it? How do we get rid of this thing? And how does it happen? It needed to go. But these people were on the left. He was a leading liberal of his day, a crusader not for souls but for political and social reform. He was an establishment figure, not a small-town vigilante. He spoke from a position of power and respectability from which he safely and irresponsibly rode to the outer limits every fad of his day. Beecher is not the father of the moral majority. He is the father of the smug establishment figures who juggle morality and uh, symbiotic lifestyles in an everlasting shell game. Today's morality movement comes out of that other quieter Protestant tradition, its adherents are the, are the attacked, not the attackers. They're not dogmatists seeking to impose their narrow standards on more enlightened fellow citizens. They are rather provoked into defending their communities and standards from impositions by the arrogant purveyors of a false and imperialistic ethos. And I think this is also true when you look at the retrenchment and people defending these things today. Many of them, are, they're not the beachers, even though I think sometimes they get into some of this stuff uh, and that causes their own problems. They need to forget that side of, of, of American reform because they don't want to be called names. This is what all com- they don't want to be called names. Nobody does. Nobody wants to be, and particularly when you don't believe what the name, don't believe the things the people call you the names, they're going to call you those names anyways because they're so stupid they don't know what else to do. This is the thing about the left and even the conservatives who do the same thing because Michael Anton has said these things to me. He's so stupid he can't figure out that he's actually undermining his own position. They're so stupid they can't come up with anything else. Well, I guess you're a racist. You're a pro-slave. No. I mean, what makes you think that? Because I'm saying things that the founding generation were racist as a modern conception of the term or these kind of things. I mean, okay, so what? I mean, we can still admire much of what they did. We can still admire Robert E. Lee. But no, no, you can't. That strange combination of Puritanism and democracy that wreaked so much havoc in the 19th century, having done its work and reached the natural limits of expansion, began to retreat into narrow and less, narrower and less dangerous limits after the, after the debacle of Reconstruction. Something very similar is perhaps happening now. If so, we can hope once again for leaders for whom public life as for Lee is an arena for the ex- exercise of private virtue rather than, as for the Beechers, a vehicle for the social mobilization of private greed and discontent. But 40 years later, we're seeing the Beecher model back in ascendancy, though I think Americans reject it. Overall, Americans reject that, and that's something we have to understand. But I love this piece because, again, 1982, we're right in the early stages of the Reagan Revolution. We're seeing all of that, you know, what's going on here. And so because of that, I think Clyde Wilson is pointing out some pretty important parts of American society and and exposing the Beechers and these faux people for what they really were. I mean, it's a good thing. Uh, And, I mean, uh, several years ago... Uh, Thomas Fleming, not the Tom Fleming from Chronicles, but the the historian Thomas Fleming um, wrote a book that blamed the abolitionists for the war, and he was excoriated for this. 
Right? But he just pointed out that these people really caused some of the problems. These were the leftists. And Fleming, of course, was conservative. And before he died, he contacted me one time about it. He said, yeah, I, I, I like... Um, I like uh, some of the. I like your your book on the founding fathers. He was certainly interested in uh, a much more uh, reasonable approach to American history than uh, than the left. And I mean, I think that's something that we have to understand. Now, the political Puritans are a problem. You can't. I mean, thinking locally and acting locally is the way to defend this. And doing what Clyde says here and trying to focus on your communities and yourself and your family. Those are the things. That's how you combat this stuff. But we've got still more great stuff this week. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.